0: When I was in seminary, uh, everybody's favorite movie, everybody's favorite movie, uh, was A River Runs Through It. Now, there's a reason why it was everybody's favorite movie. It was Brad Pitt's second movie, and he was very hunky. I mean, I'll be honest, he's a gorgeous-looking man. And uh, he was very young in that movie, and, and he was shining. And uh, it was also uh, everybody's favorite movie because it was Presbyterian. It was about a Presbyterian father. I mean, it was everybody's favorite movie in my seminary, right? Uh, all 40 of us loved it. And, uh, you know, it was about a Presbyterian father raising two sons. And uh, and, it, and finally, it was about Montana and fishing and beautiful scenery. What's not to love? And, uh, and it's a story of these two boys who are trying to figure out their own identity apart from their father. And one stays under his father's influence and... And goes to college and uh, becomes a writer and writes this story. And the other one just steadily rebels. He steadily rebels. And, uh, okay, I'm going to ruin the ending, but it's 30 years old. So you've had your chance, okay? Um, and, and Brad Pitt, he's Paul in the movie. Paul just, he just has this belief in his heart that he can take anybody and that he can do anything. And that leads Paul into taking risks, and it leads him into gambling and, and running up gambling debts. And it leads Paul to refuse to ask anyone to help. And his brother would come to him time and again and beg him, please, will you let me get, help you get out of here? Will you help me fi- let me find you another job? Will you let me talk to these people? And uh, will you at least let me pay your debts? And... Paul looks at him and says, they're my debts. They're mine. And uh, in the final scene of the movie, uh, his brother comes, is called by the police, woken up in the middle of the night, and he goes and he has to identify the body of Paul who was beaten to death um, by a loan shark with the back of a pistol. And his father's just... Brokenhearted hearted and crushed and he, he keeps coming to Norman and asking him, is there anything else you can tell me? Is there anything else you can tell me? And, and finally uh, Norman says, well the police did say or the, the uh, coroner did say that every bone in his hand was broken and his father said, which hand? And he said, well, it was his right hand and his father kind of smiled and said well he died fighting no comfort in that he died. And, and you see, what killed Paul was not the gambling and it was not the debts. Well, what killed him was a man with a gun. But um, beyond, behind that, what killed Paul and led to his demise was his refusal to ask for help. He was convinced that he could do it alone. He was convinced that that he could do life alone, that he could redeem himself alone, that he can solve his own problems alone. And that is the third lie that we're going to talk about, that I can do it alone. I am my own person. I don't need no help. It's just not true. And there's lies behind that lie, and, it's, it, and when, when you just kind of state it like that, you know, it kind of sounds cool. It's kind of The cowboy way, you know, I can do this alone. Um, But there's a lot of shame and guilt and fear behind that lie that ended up ruining us. And and what I want you to know today is that if you entrust yourself fully, if you entrust all the shameful stuff, all the weaknesses, all the sin, if you entrust yourself fully to God and His people, then you can live a life of of joy, of steady healing, of, of love, of being loved and loving others, truly loving others, and truly being loved as you actually are. But if you insist on going through life alone, you have no choice but to get hardened and bitter, and disappointed, and cynical, and eventually die. But if, as I said, if you will entrust yourself fully, you can know life, and joy, and grace, and healing. Please stand as we read from Psalm 32. This is a psalm of David. And it's important to note that this psalm, though it Uh, it could sound individualistic it was addressed uh, as a mascal it's a mascal of David what we think that means is it was a really hard song to sing it had multiple parts and uh, so some if you'll look at those titles sometimes they're written you know to the chief musician and that means there were hymns that everybody joined in right and they sang them during worship Well, they sang all of them during worship. And then the mascals were the really hard songs that the the professional singers would sing. So this one probably had multiple parts and would have been really cool to hear. But y'all are stuck listening to me read it. Sorry. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to you, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all of our glory is like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. Standing alone, that desire to to define ourselves to be fully independent, is at the heart of what sin is. That that individualism that is the the very heart of sin. It doesn't sound that way, and this may be a, a completely new thought to you if you're new to this church. But that is what is at the heart of it that that spirit that we see in children. You know, most of our children, the very first sentence. The very first full sentence they say is, "I can do it alone." They, they, we don't want help. We, we don't want to be told how to do it. We don't want anyone else putting our clothes on for us. We want to do it alone, and that's good. Like we're glad we're not still dressing each other. That would be annoying. Um, We're all headed back to that day, and that's you know not really good news. But. for now, it's good to dress ourselves. But, but that desire to be independent, to know who we are and, and, and create who we are and who we are going to be, to need no one, that is the, the very heart of the desire of sin, because you were created to be fully dependent upon God. You were created to do everything in full relationship with Him. Okay, let's talk more specifically, okay? Why do you sin? Think of a sin. Why, uh, why do you lie? You lie to make yourself look good. Why do you want to look good? Well, because you don't want to look bad. There, there's selfishness right at the core of that. There is a selfish, selfishness right at the core of it, right? I, I did it. For me to protect me. You call me and you say, Hey, can you come over? And I say, No, I'm busy. I'm not busy. I just don't want to come. I'm lazy. I'm tired. I but I don't want you to think bad of me. So I lie. Um it's it's this, this self-desire and the the heart of, of righteousness is to love others as you love yourself, is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the heart of sin is to set, step away from others. It's to step away from God, to not need Him. And in every sin, you, you see that that decision, stealing, what is it? It's, it's taking from you and keeping from me, coveting, envy, what is it? It's saying, you don't deserve that, I do. Adultery, sexual immorality, what is it? It's not... The Bible's picture of marriage, right? In the Bible's picture of marriage, the husband's body belongs to his spouse. The wife's body belongs to her husband. It's giving each other. It's giving ourselves away to serve another. But what is adultery? What is sexual immorality? It's using you to make me feel good. It's using you selfishly. At the heart of all these sins is this selfishness, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is that after we are aware of our sin, after we're convicted of our sin, we don't want no help. And so we go down this trail of doing selfish thing after selfish thing to try to save ourselves. Step one, denial. I didn't really do that. It wasn't really a lie. Uh, There's a famous saying by Nietzsche, don't, don't think I've read a single word of Nietzsche, but I've heard Tim Keller quote him a lot. And uh, he was talking about the, the, the relationship between your memory and your pride. And your memory says, I did that. And your pride says, oh, I would never do that. And pride always wins. You literally refuse to believe you did what you did. That's, uh, that's step one. Step two is, is blame. I mean, you made me do it. If you weren't always so demanding, if you weren't always badgering me to do things that you know I don't want to do, I wouldn't have to lie to you about it. It's your fault. Well, we believe that. 100% we believe that. And we, to the point that we get mad at people for us not being kind enough and clear enough to tell them what we want to do and not. Why can't you be so considerate as to read my mind? It's easier to lie. It's easier to be mad. We, we deny, we justify ourselves. We, we begin to make ourselves feel better by, I'm, I'll go next time. Next time I'm really going to do it. This time I'm going to lie and not do it, but next time I, I'm going to help. I, I'll be a better husband. I, I'm going to make this up to you. I'm going to clean the kitchen. Yeah, I screamed at my kids last week, but or five minutes ago. But I'm going to take them out for ice cream, and I'm going to be a better dad now. I'm going to be better. And we, we heap up the good works, so we don't have to actually acknowledge our sin. And then we begin uh, when that doesn't work, we begin to hurt, uh, self flagellate. We begin to believe, we begin to believe that if I could just be sorry enough, God would have to forgive me. If I could just be sorry enough, my wife would have to forgive me. And so we plead and we cry. And it's still on us. Um, this book I read recently about Chad Bird, he talks about the Lutheran prayer of confession. And they after you list all your sins, you say, And for all these things, we are truly sorry. Are you? Are you truly sorry? That word truly can eat you alive. I mean, let's, let's, let's take it down some paths. I mean, this silly, simple, stupid illustration I'm using. But the lie enabled me to stay at home and watch the TV show I wanted to watch. Am I truly sorry I got that night of rest? Or take it further. I shouldn't have committed adultery and gotten divorced. But I'm a lot happier with my new wife. Are you truly sorry then? I uh, he uses an example of a woman who had abortions as a young as a young woman. She got pregnant as a teenager. She had the children aborted. She got converted. She got married. Now she has beautiful family. And, and she can't say that sentence in her worship service because she knows she's not truly sorry because she really likes the life she has now. Am I truly sorry? That In that word is this effort to justify ourselves. If I'm only sad enough, then God will forgive me. If I can only be sad enough. The final step. True repentance means not doing it again, and I'm not going to do it again. And if I can not do it again, if I can white-knuckle it and not do it again, then God will have to forgive me. I'll show that I'm truly repentant, and I can forgive myself. Oh, that's a whole nother one, right? Oh, that's, I forgot about that one. I didn't put that on one on my list. That, that, that famous phrase, oh, I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Who cares? Don't be so arrogant as to think that your opinion of you matters more than God's opinion of you. But again, we don't want to make ourselves nothing. We don't want to empty ourselves out. What do we want? We want to justify it ourselves. We want to atone for ourselves. We want to do it ourselves. And just like Paul in the movie, we, our refusal to receive help results in us covering our sin and becoming harder and harder to our sin and becoming more and more religious and less and less lovable. And we live on this high wire where one and the same time we're projecting this image where everything's great. And inside we're terrified that we're going to fall. It's not us and it's not real and there's no healing that goes on, and there's no help that goes on all because we are addicted to self salvation. Why are we addicted to self-salvation? Because you're scared. We're scared. Um Remember the song uh Rocket Man? Oh, how can you how can I say remember it's on the radio every day still? Elton John song from the 70s, and there's this there's a line uh, in it that says, uh, "I just wonder how long it's go- basically it's going to be a long, long time till I come back around and find I'm not the man they thought I was at all." Like that kind of defined my my life for so long. Being up here on this stage, terrified that you were going to find out that I am not who you think I am, and why? Why don't I want to let you know who I am? Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if you really knew how much self-doubt and fear I experience every day, if you really knew how sad I get every Sunday night or every Saturday night, not thinking I'm going to be able to do this again, if you really knew how how much self-loathing I am constantly trying to offload. If you only really knew that the two emotions that that, that self-hatred has brought out in me is anger, and I, I poured it out on my kids a lot, and they were scared of me. Once, one night at the dinner table, I was getting ready to preach a sermon on the fear of the Lord, and I just looked at the boys, I said, are you all afraid of me? They <laughs> went, well, yeah. I wasn't wanting an answer that enthusiastically, and the other emotion it stirs up in me is depression, and I'm on my fourth and fifth antidepressants right now, and that's that's what my life is going to look like to the end. If you knew that, would you still love me? If you knew that I, I treated that depression with peanut butter and I really am a food addict, I don't care how much I look like it and I've already gained in two months half of the weight I lost in six and I don't see a way around it and RUF came and dropped off two dozen wonderful iced cookies for us last Tuesday night and I think I ate eight of them because they made me feel better if you knew that when I'm not treating it with food I'm treating it with alcohol and sometimes I drink too much If you knew that, would you still love me? I think you would. I think you would, because that's the gospel. That's the good news. That our Father looks at us as we really are, and He loves that guy. He doesn't love the guy who's perfect, who's putting on a performance, who pretends that everything's fine, that when you ask him how he's doing, everything's great, and I'm great with everybody, and I'm, I've forgiven everybody. We, we, God doesn't love that guy because that guy is not real. The, the reality is that when we bring our stuff to God, when we, for, when we ask him, when we, as, Paul, as, as David says, when we're silent, Our bones wax within us. I always find an excuse to read this text in the summer. Our strength is sapped like it is in the summer. We have no no vitality. We spend all of our energy covering up. But when I acknowledged my sin to you, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And you became my hiding place. And and this is the the truth of the gospel. God will forgive whatever you bring to him. Right there in your point of shame. I was uh, was actually texting with a friend this morning because I wanted to get this story right. But a good friend of mine uh, failed out of college. He flunked out. He was going to OU. He and his girlfriend were both there. um, And she was doing fine, and he flunked out. And uh, he just felt this overwhelming shame and guilt. And it may or may not have been the first time he flunked out, but it was his third school. And so, uh, you know, he had to go, and he didn't want to leave her at school and move back home, so he started taking classes at the local community college there in OKC. and uh, So he went to the registrar's office, and he signed up for these classes. And he, was, he just walked out just overwhelmed with shame. And there was his girlfriend with a mug the name of the community college on it in a laminated spanish folder and she met his shame with love and approval right there at the very point of shame and failure where it would have made every all the sense in the world for her to have said hey call me when you grow up instead she met him at his weakest point with love and grace that's the gospel and when you trust it, when you trust that God will heal whatever you bring to Him, then you've got the confidence to actually look at yourself and see what needs to be healed. I, I just, we have to really meditate on what Jesus is like. He tells us He came to heal the sick. He sees our sin as, as sickness. Our sin draws out His pity. And so when the unclean touch him, with the man with leprosy touches him, with the woman with a flow of blood touches him, when the unclean uh, demoniac touches him who lives in a graveyard and lives with the pigs, he's as unclean as you can possibly be, whenever they touch him, they are clean. He makes them clean. They don't make him unclean. He makes them clean. And Jesus is here to make you clean. But all you have to do is come to him. When the father didn't have enough faith, he he said, "Heal me of my unbelief." And he made him clean. That's what makes the story of the rich young man so sad. He, he walks away, right? G, uh, he says, "What do I have to do to enter the kingdom of God?" You know, keep the law. I've done that. God, yes. What else? Give away your goods and follow me. And Jesus was sad. Mark tells us he. He had compassion on him because he loved him. Why did he love him? Because he was good looking? Seriously, ask yourself the question. Why would Mark go to the trouble of saying Jesus loved this guy? Because Jesus loves sinners. And don't you wish that story had ended by the man looking at him saying, I'm greedy, can you heal me of my greed? He would have. He would have he heals us of everything we bring to him the problem is most of us are afraid to even look at what we need to bring to him because that would mean admitting that we're broken that would mean admitting that we're weak that would mean admitting that we've messed something up and it's a lot easier for us to just trust ourselves and white knuckle it and pretend everything's okay, and pretend everything's okay, but if, for those who are, are willing, for those who who are willing to take this leap of faith, they find profound joy, they find profound joy living as a body, living with each other we, we share our weaknesses with each other, and we get to enjoy that blessing of grace again and again. I love the way um, I love the way. Uh, G- Tolkien, sorry, I get the initials wrong, C.S., J.R., G.K., why couldn't they go with names? Uh, J.R. Tolkien describes it when uh, d- the dwarf Gimli uh, meets with the, the queen of the elves, the mortal enemies, and, and um, Gandalf has just died, and it was Gimli's fault. It really was. He's the one who kept saying, let's go through this mine, let's go through this mine. And he he looks at the queen, and she's so pure that that she reads everyone's minds. and, And it makes a lot of people pretty ashamed. But he looks at her, and she speaks words of grace. And Tolkien says these words so beautifully. It was as if he looked into the heart of his mortal enemy and found a friend. That is what we get to experience over and over when we bring out the things that we are ashamed of, that I don't want you to know about me. And instead of seeing you go, <sighs> or watching you roll your eyes, you smile and you say, me too, and we love you harder, and we welcome you in. That's the church being the church, and it's a joyful, wonderful existence, and it, and it works, and we're, we're seeing it grow here. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. I, uh, Jonathan walked into my office yesterday. Uh, what day was I in the office last Thursday saying, I just can't believe how much so and so has changed. He's gone from being the most cynical person I've ever known to being the most encouraging people person I'm ever around. It wasn't instantaneous, it took years. Some of you people have been here a long time, and you're getting there. And I'm proud of you. I really am, actually. Because what do we do? We tell each other who we are in Christ. We remind each other who we are. You're in Christ. You sinned. And it's beautiful that you're sad about it. And if you weren't in Christ, you wouldn't be sad about it. But you are. Isn't that great? And then we begin to trust each other. And our, our... Our self-medication begins to change, and now instead of white-knuckling our our lives going, I won't do that again, we go, okay, I'm going to do it again. Everybody knows I'm going to do it again. What am I going to do when I do it again? I'm going to call my friends. I'm going to shoot out a text saying I've done it again. And they're going to say, man, I wish you hadn't done that, but I love you. And after experiencing that enough times, we're going to start texting them right before we do it. And we're going to start, after we do that enough times, we're going to find that we're not sending that text as often because we're different. That's how the Lord heals you of whatever you'll bring to Him, whatever you'll bring out. But as everything you hide, everything that you keep silent about, just makes your bones waste away and you groan all day long. And you're miserable because God's hand is upon you. Because He wants you to get that stuff out. He wants you to receive the gospel day in and day out. He wants you to hear who you really are. There's a, uh, so one of the results of me being such a sourpuss, Eeyore, is I don't watch intense movies, and I certainly don't watch sad ones. So I don't want to give you the idea that I've seen Blood Diamond or I have any intention of ever seeing Blood Diamond because it would leave me, it would seriously leave me depressed for like three days. Um, it took me 30 years to watch Saving Private Ryan. I was depressed for two days, and I'm like, why did I do that? So, it didn't make me a better person. But there is a, Blood Diamond is a story about this these evil uh, cartels that go around in Africa kidnapping little boys and turning them into soldiers and making them do awful things and, and giving them machine guns at very young ages and, and brainwashing them into using them and, and It's the story, among other things, of a a man named Solomon going after his son and hunting his son for years. And when he finally finds him, his son points a gun directly at his father and gets ready to shoot him. And his father very kindly and carefully speaks, what are you doing? Look at me. What are you doing? You are Diavandi. You are the of the proud tribe of the Mindi, You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much, and she waits for you by the fire making plantains, and she's with your sister Nyanda and, and a new baby. Son, I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy, and I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me and you will be my son again. That's what true repentance looks like. It's not us doing something so that God loves us. It's him coming to us and saying, this is who you are. You're my son. And he brings us home again and again. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that this life of honesty and confession and, and brokenness, is hard. And, and we get ashamed of ourselves, and so we assume, assume that everybody else is ashamed of us. And we hide from everybody else because we hide from you, and because we honestly hide from ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to live this life of grace to live this life of of not hiding, of actually receiving grace where we are. Father, I pray for those of us who haven't done it in a long, long time. I pray that we'd be honest about our sin with you. And we'd find the courage to somehow look you in the face, knowing that we have sinned against you feeling like we are looking into the heart of our enemy and that we would see there a loving friend. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus, who took our shame and guilt away so that we could look at you and receive grace.